0: Okay, no introduction, no fancy illustration, no little story, no little clever quip or comedic little bit to start the sermon. This evening, I want to hit the ground running 100 miles an hour, and I want us immediately to try and get to grips with the historical context of the verses that you and I have just read together, the historical situation in Isaiah chapter 7. So what's the question? We've we've got to answer, what is this? Okay, what what is going on here? Well, uh, what we're dealing with this evening right there, it took place in the 8th century B.C. So we're, we're dealing with maybe 735, B.C. Does that mean anything? Do you know what it should mean? Immediately we should realize, ah, that means that at this point, the promised land is divided into two kingdoms, isn't it? You have rebellious Israel in the north, And you have where actually where our attention is and where Jerusalem is located. You have Judah in the south. So uh, have I lost you already? Are you with me? The promised land split into two kingdoms. Israel in the north and our attention, Judah in the south. Now, what you have to appreciate is at this very point in time that we're dealing with, whoa. Judah, the people of God, are under threat. You have to appreciate that. You see, what Israel, its northern neighbor, has done is join forces with Syria and those two have a wicked plan. You ready for it? To ward off the advancing Assyrian empire, Israel and Syria want to attack the people of God. They want to indeed annex Judah. They actually want to dethrone the Judean king, this man Ahaz. Now, maybe you noticed it, did you, from verse 1, that they have already tried and failed to do stuff. So Israel and Syria have already tried to trick Judah into entering into a pact with them. They've tried and failed to attack Judah. But this is what you've got to feel in your bones tonight. They're coming back. So the twin armies of Israel and Syria here are mustered. You see it? They are looming large, these twin armies. And you got to understand from the text, I mean, it tells you in the text, the people of God are petrified. I mean, the people of God are scared. They're really, really frightened in this portion of Scripture. Now, did you follow it? Did you get the background? This dual threat from the north? If so, maybe already you sense something of a parallel with London City Presbyterian Church and ourselves tonight. Did you? Because isn't it true that recently the reality facing Christians in the United Kingdom has dramatically changed, hasn't it? In the space of a few decades... Christians in this country have gone from being people who are respected to people who are suspected. Isn't that right? In just a few decades, it's gone for Christians and gone from being quite a privileged, respected people. gone to a point where tonight, I think this is accurate, isn't it? That we face, yeah, we face twin threats also, don't we? We face the rising influence of Islam in this country. And we also face the rising influence of social liberalism. In this country and let's face it tonight how does that make us as christians feel isn't it the case that being believers in post-christian britain that we can be also unsettled by this isn't it true that we like the people in isaiah 7 tonight as believers in this country we can be worried we too can be anxious well, if you see, do, you see the parallel. If you see the parallel, then I think honestly, we have got reason to rejoice that we're in Isaiah seven because you know what happens here? Do you know what we're going to see? God speaks to his people under threat. That's what happens in Isaiah seven. God addresses his people who feel threatened. And maybe if you followed the reading closely, I'm hoping you did. But if you followed the reading closely, did you notice it kind of breaks into two sections? There's two sections we've got, and so tonight I'm going to do the really unimaginative thing, and I'm going to follow that biblical division of this portion of scripture. So tonight there's just two points, two sections. That's, but, listen, two points that I think, beautifully, miraculously, two points that both land in the same place. Guess what it is? Two points that both land in Bethlehem about 2,000 years ago. So, first of all, we're going to see here a summons to faithfulness. A summons to faithfulness. That's the first thing. The second thing we'll see later on is a sign of faithfulness. So, has everyone got it? If you're taking notes, write quickly. A summons to faithfulness and a sign of faithfulness. Now, everyone got your Bibles open? You're gonna, you, wow, you're going to need it. You're going to need your Bible open for Isaiah 7. First of all, let's consider a summons to faithfulness. And here, if you look down, we're going to look at the verses from 3 to verse 9. See that section there? Because we've already established the introduction, the setting. So it's verse 3 to verse 9. Now that's what we're going to think of for the first point, okay? Right. Now, maybe you are as (laughs) bamboozled as I have been most of the week, by the geographical precision and detail of verse 3. Do you see how detailed it is? It's not a throwaway comment, is it really? Look at that. We are told that King Ahaz, the Judean king, where is he? Look at it. He is, verse 3, he is at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field is fairly precise, isn't it? I mean, it's detailed. So maybe you're bamboozled by that, or maybe you just get it straight away, do you? Let's think about it for a second. A city's water supply, Jerusalem's water, water supply, absolutely crucial in a time of siege or a time of imminent attack, isn't it? I mean, they got, got to have a good water supply in a time of siege. So you can see what the king is doing before Israel attacks, before Syria attacks, Ahaz is out there, outside of Jerusalem, and he's checking it, he's checking the pipes, checking that everything's in, in or and, and he's checking the city's water supply. Just as what happens? Just as the Almighty God sends to the king, the prophet Isaiah. So we've got the location, don't we, outside Jerusalem in the washer's field, but what is it that God prompts Isaiah to say to the king. Well I think this is accurate. That Isaiah the prophet has three things, three things to say to the king, and each of the things that he's each of the messages is to prompt the king to trust Yahweh, to trust the Lord God. So I'm going to work through the three things really, really briefly. So what does he say? First thing is this that Ahaz the king is to trust in God's work. His work. Have a look at verse 4 with me, friends, please. Boys and girls, you check it out as well. Verse 4. Now, here's what I think could go wrong in verse 4. I think in verse 4, we could think that the main emphasis of what Isaiah says to the king is the same emphasis as the angel Gabriel in the Christmas story when he speaks to Joseph. So, boys and girls, what's the first thing that the angel Gabriel says To Joseph in the Christmas story. Do you know it? You should know it. The angel appears to Joseph and he says, do not, yes, got it. Do not fear. It's the first thing. Now we could think, if you notice it in verse four, we could think, I mean, Isaiah says this to the king and we could think that's the main emphasis. God is saying Ahaz, this attack is imminent, don't fear. Now that, listen to me, is not the main emphasis here. The main emphasis is what is said at the beginning of the verse. This is what's emphatic. Isaiah says to the king, be careful, be quiet, or... Now, this is how somebody else has rendered this, and this sums it up. Isaiah stands before the king and says, King, be careful to do nothing. Be careful to do nothing. Now, friends, do you see the message? Do you hear the message that God is giving to this king? He's saying to the king, to King Ahaz, do not compromise. He's saying to the king, at this point, when there is this imminent attack, do not give them any ground. Do not give in to these people. Trust me. Are they trying to get you to enter into a pact with them? Do not do that. Do not give in. Trust me, I am your God. Be careful to do nothing. Do not compromise. And if you hear that, if you're listening, is there not already straight off the bat a message for us as Christians to the London City Presbyterian Church? Because let us take one element of the threat that Christians face in our society in the 21st century. Let's just take this changing wave of sexual politics in the UK. Can, I wonder if that is something that concerns you. Is it? Does it concern you? Does it concern your kids, grandkids? This idea of new ideas of gender. New ideas of sexuality that's all out there in London. Now, what is the temptation that is before Christians? Is the temptation not to follow all of these Christian leaders who are saying, we have to give some ground on this matter. I mean, that is what we're hearing from so many Christians and so many Christian leaders. We have to give we can't take such a firm stance on these things. We have to be more love. If the church, if the people of God is going to thrive, if it's going to survive, we have to give in. We can't we must compromise to some extent. And isn't it interesting then to open Isaiah 7 and to hear what God says to a people under threat? What does he say? He doesn't just say to you and me, don't fear. It's not just that. It's not that kind of empty threat, not that empty comforting word. What does God say? He says to us, be careful to do nothing. He says to us, do not compromise. But then there's a second thing. I said three things, three words from Isaiah, from God to Ahaz. Second one, Ahaz is to trust God's sovereignty, his sovereignty. Okay, what, what, what do you think of this portion of Scripture that was read? quite a difficult chapter would you say that boys and girls did you find it quite difficult this portion of scripture because aren't there some crazy names aren't there some crazy names yes all the boys and girls agreed with that but there are aren't there there's some strange names of places and some strange names of men could be quite difficult to tie it down but even with in a sense the strange names you must have noticed this everyone but halfway through the first section, the genre changes. Did you notice? You notice that from verse 7, what we beautiful gift from God. We are given a divine poem. God writes a poem. He speaks a poem here. And it's a poem designed to remind the king of one, just one crucial point. Let's try and get it together, the point of the poem. So look at verse 8 with me. Now, I wonder if you would agree with this, that what God seems to be doing in verse 8 is tracing the power source of Judah's enemies. Do you see it's tracing the power source? Look what's said in verse 8. It says to Ahaz, the head of Syria is what? It's a city. And then do you see how God continues to trace the power source? And the head of that city is a man. Right, so God's tracing the power source of one enemy to a man. Now, here's the thing. I love this. Look at verse 9, because remember, there's two enemies. Look at verse 9. You see it? What does God do? God does the same thing with the other enemy. He says, Israel, Ephraim. What Come on, what's 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 the power source? It's a city, it's Samaria, and then traces it back. Traces it back. What is it? With the power source. It's, it's, it's a man. Right, friends, do you see what's going on here? In this poem, God is reminding Ahaz... That the enemies of the people of God are who? They are mere mortals. God is saying in this beautiful poem, and it's beautiful, God is saying, you have, has, no reason at all to be afraid. Don't fear. Why not? Because they're just men. They're governed by men. And what's different about the people of God? What's different about Judah? Who's his king, really? Who's his power? Who's his leader? He's saying in this poem, it's me, almighty, eternal God. And again, I think there's a lesson here. Because maybe we need to be <laughs> chastised this evening. Maybe we need to be rebuked. Because is it the case, Christian friend, that we're sitting in here tonight and we are overly concerned about what the future holds? Is that true view? Like, is it true that in your heart you panic about what living in post-Christian Britain will mean for us as a church or for your family, for yourself, for your children, for your grandparents, panicking about these things? If you are overly concerned, if you are panicked about these things, then truth be told, the mistake is the same mistake as Isaiah 7. And we are not grasping fully the utter, complete sovereignty of the God that we worship. He is sovereign. And so I have a very simple, practical step that we ought to take. If we are feeling like that, panicked, then as we go into 2019, how we ought to spend, resolve to spend more time in God's Word, to be more biblically grounded. Why? 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 Because it is only there that we will see and be reminded how things really are. Our enemies are no match for our sovereign, eternal God. So Ahaz is to trust in God's work. He is to trust in God's sovereignty. But I said three, didn't I? So the last one. Ahaz is to trust in God's plan. To trust in God's plan. Okay, here's an interesting one. Have you... Um, ever been asked to write a job description before? Have you ever had to do that, to write a job profile or a job description? I've done one or two uh, in, the, in, in the past job descriptions. Now, here's the thing. I think we've done this before. Again, if you were asked to write the job description for an Old Testament prophet, if that was our role tonight, if we had to write a job profile of an Old Testament prophet, what would you write? What was the job? What's the job profile of an Old Testament prophet? What would you say? I think you would definitely say to me that an Old Testament prophet was to be a spokesman for God. We know that, don't we? Old Testament prophet was to hear a message from God and deliver it to the people, to speak, to proclaim. Right? We get, we nail that. That's no problem to us. But isn't there another aspect to being an Old Testament prophet? Because before in the congregation, we have talked about what was called enacted prophecies. Do you remember this from Malachi, enacted prophecies? Because sometimes what an Old Testament prophet had to do was actually act stuff out, to actually do things as a way of conveying a message to the people. So not just speaking, but actually go through the motions, do something. There's an obvious example I'll give you. What about Hosea? What was the great enacted prophecy that Hosea had to do? Do you know what he had to do? He had to marry a prostitutes in order to convey something of the unfaithfulness of the people of israel so what is it enacted prophecy doing something acting out did anyone get it did anyone notice the enacted prophecy in this short section of scripture see i'm asking you here who do you think is in the washer's field you think you'd say to me would you Isaiah is there, and he's speaking to the king. Is that right? Have a look again. Look at verse 3. That's not right. Look at verse 3. God commanded the prophet to take with him his son. Isn't that interesting? He commanded Isaiah, don't just go and speak to the king. Your little boy, with you. Now, let me point to a couple of details about this. First of all, you need to know that this is Isaiah's eldest son. So if you were to read on in Isaiah, you would be introduced to some of Isaiah's other children. This guy, this is Isaiah's eldest child. You got it? Here's the second detail. Get his name. Look at his name. Sheer Joshua. Look at the footnotes. What does it mean? A remnant will repent or a remnant will return. Friends, do you see what's happening? Up there on the washer's field, God has a clear message for King Ahaz. Isaiah is to take before the king, this little boy. He is to put the little boy before this almighty king. What is he to do? He's to point to the child. And he's to say, do you not recognize the message? Yes, you are under threat. Yes, you will be attacked, but you must trust God. Look at the child. Look at the boy. A remnant will repent. A remnant will return. The people of God shall survive. Do you see the enacted prophecy? And I tell you this, I love that. I mean, I love it. I'll tell you why. Because what Isaiah is doing with Ahaz in that field, I think, God is doing with you and with me at Christmas. Because are we worried about the future? Worried about the church going into 2019? Are we? What does God do tonight? He points you to son. And what does he say to us? He says to us, through my firstborn son, through my Son, who is like Sheer Jashu, He is in a real sense the Son of God, the Word in Through Him, we need not fear. Do you hear that? We need not fear that the Church has nodded to worry that there's nothing that can stand against the church in this son of god through the lord jesus christ a remnant shall be spared a remnant will repent by the grace of god that in 2019 what do we know for sure god will preserve and protect his people so we see a summons to faithfulness But second then, and more briefly, we have to look at verses 10 to verses 17. So verses 10 to verse 17, and we've seen a summons to faithfulness. Secondly, let's consider a sign of faithfulness. And let me speak to the boys and girls just for a minute. Let me ask the boys and girls the most ridiculous question that they've ever been asked. So you ready, boys and girls? Here it is. Are you looking forward to Christmas? Yes, you are. That's a surprise. Are you really looking forward to Christmas? You are. It's great, isn't it? Well, things are about to get a little bit more Christmassy in here, aren't they? Because you probably noticed that we go into, as we go into this next section, what confronts us? Verse 14, a prophecy of child, child to be born, a virgin. A child to be named Emmanuel. Now, here's the temptation. Real temptation. Temptation is this. The temptation is to skim over the details of the context here, isn't it? Like The temptation is for me to say, oh, isn't it amazing? There is an Old Testament prophecy of a virgin birth. And, lo and behold, that is fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. To skim over it pass over it. Job done. There's a temptation. But we have to, this evening, deal with the biblical text with some integrity. So this is what I want us to do. I want to ask and answer three really, really brief questions about this. This is a Christmas prophecy. Do you want it like that? It is certainly a grand, majestic prediction from God. So to ask and answer three very, very brief questions. This is the first one. It's the how question. How does this prediction of a virgin birth come about in the text? Would you look at it with me? Look at verse 11. You must have noticed if you were paying attention to the reading... That he has this king is given just the most incredible opportunity. Do you think? I mean, we need, we need to love this what yeah, places with him for a moment. I mean, what an opportunity. He is prompted by God to ask for a sign. Now, do you see the this the scope of the sign? That's what's exciting about it. Like, do you see it? It's unrestricted. So the king can ask for it at that moment. Any sign. Like, the, the emphasis on the fact is miraculous. Like, you can ask for anything in heaven. Anything in You can ask for any sign whatsoever. It's an amazing opportunity. Now, incredibly, the king says no. So this is what I want to know from you. What do you think of his answer in verse 12? Look at it, boys and girls. You look at it. I want consensus. What do we think of Ahaz's answer here? Look at it. Ahaz says, I'm not going to ask for a sign. And look, I will not put the Lord to the test. What what do you think of that? I mean, what's the consensus here? Are we thinking, it's pretty good. It it kind of has a biblical ring, Deuteronomy ring to it, doesn't it? You know, I'm not going to put God to the test. He sounds kind of pious. You're thinking like that, are you? This is what you need to know. At this very point here, that king has made a secret deal. Did you pick up on it from the first reading? At this point here, the king has resolved to reject God's call of faithfulness. Do you know what he has, has done? You pick up from the second king's. He has gone behind the back of Israel, behind the back of Syria. He's gone... To the Assyrian Empire to strike a deal with this invading empire. He's taken, he's taken money from God's temple. He's taken gold from the temple. He's gone up to the Assyrians to say, "Let me. Let, I'm going to ignore God, but I want a political deal." Now, doesn't that entirely change the way that we read verse 12? Now doesn't seem totally pious, does it? Oh, I'm not going to put the Lord God to the test. That's not biblical. That's not spiritual. You see what he's doing. He wants Isaiah out of his face. He's in the washer's field. He says, Isaiah, I'm not going to put God to the test out of here. He is rejecting God. Now, what might we expect? Surely, what would we expect to happen now? We would expect the Lord God to remove the opportunity of a sign, wouldn't we? We'd expect God to say, I am no longer going to confirm miraculously my faithfulness to remove the opportunity of a sign. And what grace. Do you see what happens? God said, even if Ahaz rejects me, I myself will give you a sign. So we see how the sign comes about, don't we? Second question, <laughs> who is in view in the sign? This prediction of a child called Emmanuel, who's, who's in view here? And maybe you're thinking right now, what a rubbish minister this guy is. <laughs> don't nod your head. I'll, I'll look away. But maybe you're thinking that. Maybe you're thinking, come on, Andy, you are a rubbish minister. If you have in front of you a prophecy of a virgin birth <laughs> and a prophecy of who's going to be born called Emmanuel. And the question that we're asking is, who is in view? And last, maybe you're thinking, well, it's pretty obvious, it's Jesus. But do you see why we've got asked ask that question? Like, yes, you and I know that ultimately in view here is the coming of the Messiah in the virgin birth. But do you see the question? What, what did it mean to Ahaz? Like he's in that washer's field, right? And he's hearing this prophecy of a a virgin birth. Like what did it mean to him? Like the first readers of Isaiah, who did they think was, do you see the question? Do you? Who's in view here? Well, I'll tell you what, let me give you the majority position. This is what I think I'm right in saying the majority of conservative evangelical scholars, this is what they think. That in this prophecy, you have two children in view. That's, I think, the majority position. That you have a kind of double fulfillment in view. That the, you know, conservative scholars will say, yes, it points to Jesus, but, listen, that in addition to that, Ahaz should have expected another child to be born, a contemporaneous birth. That, yes, it points ultimately to the Christ, but Ahaz should have expected a child to be born in the next couple of years... A child that would usher in the destruction of his enemies. Now that is the conservative view. That's maybe majority, maybe touch and go, it seems. Can I tell you, and and it could be right. Absolutely, that could be right. Can I tell you why I don't think it is right? What did I just say earlier on? The emphasis is on a miraculous sign. Hey, God offers to move heaven and earth here. And isn't it true that just a contemporaneous child being born in the 8th century BC and given a kind of symbolic name, that's not a miracle, that's not miraculous, is it? I'll give you another reason. Harrison, Reverend Perkins preached two weeks ago and made this point. I think I'm right in saying, correct me later, but not just now okay? Later. But has made the point that you have to do some really unjustifiable things to this text to get away from the type of birth that is predicted here. And what type of birth is predicted? A virgin birth. And I know that 8th century BC was a pretty weird time and place. I'm, I'm sure it was all about out there but what do we know there weren't any virgin births in the 8th century bc and if you are still not convinced that there is only and but one child in view in this prophecy then i ask you to think about the context because you in here know isaiah really quite well i'm sure what happens in isaiah what happens in isaiah 8 what happens in isaiah 9 the picture of this child expands, it deepens. And what do we learn about the child? The child is to be a great king. This child promised here, isn't he? He's to be this great Davidic ruler, a divine ruler. What's promised in Isaiah 9? He's to be the prince of peace. He's to be mighty God. Don't we see it? There's not a contemporaneous 8th century prophecy of a child coming in a few years. No, there's one special birth in view. A virgin birth. What is prophesied, friends? Who's in view? It is the Christ and he alone. And if we've dealt with how this come about and if we've dealt with who, then this is the last thing this evening. We have to ask as a congregation... What did this prophecy of a virgin birth mean? What did it mean to Ahaz? What did it mean to the first readers? What does it mean to you, to me? It's the last question. You'll follow it, won't you? What does this mean? Well, I think, truth be told, and it's such a difficult portion of Scripture, so difficult, but I think everything in this portion of Scripture boils down to the tiniest detail in the text, and it is a most overlooked detail. Because this is right, and I very much doubt that any scholar or minister would disagree with this, that the sign of a child to Ahaz is a sign of judgment. It is a sign of condemnation and a sign of judgment. You see that, don't you? Like the child is promised, and the few years after that, Israel is going to be defeated. Syria is going to be defeated. But what happens? What happens Assyria, the empire, is going to come in. It's going to defeat Judah, defeat the people of God, and carry them off into exile. It is a sign of judgment to Ahaz. Now, you're ready for the tiny little detail in the text? Let's all look at verse 14. Verse 14. We're ending with this, so I'm sure you'll look at it. Verse 14. We read this. Isaiah speaks in the washer's field. He says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Now, this is the tiny detail that is so often overlooked. Isaiah changes the way he speaks there, and the word you is not singular. It has been, but it changes. And there, the word is plural. Isaiah says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And you see what's happening God, through his prophet, speaking through Ahaz, speaking beyond Ahaz, and speaking to all of his people. And I think it's in that we find the answer. Friends, what is this sign of a child about? In its initial context, it was to fortify God's people's faith in him. God saying, yeah, things are going to be really tough. The Assyrian army is going to come in. Things are going to be awful, but you must trust in me. You must rely on me. There will be indeed a time where God says to them, I'm going to come amongst you. I'm going to live with you. I'm going to be amongst you, living, walking with you. And I close with what I think is a really obvious thing to say, but it's still precious. Uh, Tonight, Because of this, we should go into Christmas and we should rejoice. Because what do we know? God has not just promised a child. God has delivered. He's not just promised his coming to earth. We know tonight that this has been beautifully and perfectly fulfilled. And does that not reinforce your faith in God this evening That he does not just promise Emmanuel, but he comes. That Christ is born. The Savior has come. 2,000 years ago in the most humble of circumstances in the Middle East, what happened? Almighty eternal God became flesh and dwelt amongst us. We have no reason to fear. Does it not reinforce and bolster your faith? Friends, I say this to you. Leave with us. Go into Christmas with us. Ensure tonight that your confidence is found in Jesus Christ. If there is any message in Isaiah 7, surely that we must trust in our God. And consider the grace. To save us from sin, he has become like us. To save us. Friends, a child is born, born to a virgin to save us. Emmanuel has come, God with us. Let's pray. Gracious God our Heavenly Father, as we have prayed morning and night in both services, you are sovereign. You are eternal. You are all-conquering and all-powerful. And so how we marvel at the fact that to save your people from our iniquity, our nature, our rebellion, that you have dressed yourself in humanity. You have lowered yourself, condescended to be like us. Oh, Lord God, if you had become the greatest of kings on this earth, it would have been a dramatic condescension. But you have become born in poverty, all to win us from death and hell. Lord, we thank you for these great, dramatic prophecies of the coming of the Christ, how they enrich our faith and reliance new. But we thank you, Lord, that we look from this side of Jesus' ministry and we see it is true. Christ is born of Mary. Lord, how we pray all of these things, rejoicing in the incarnation, praying in the name of our Redeemer and King. Amen.